Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Sarah Betancourt of Commonwealth Magazine. Today, we have District 4 Counselor Andrea Campbell here to give us a glimpse of who she is as a mayoral candidate and what she envisions for the city of Boston. Welcome, Counselor. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. Um, so I guess let's, let's just jump right in. I know you've been on a lot of interviews recently, and I know this is something you've probably, the path you walk, you've walked down several times, but tell us a little bit about first why, why you've decided to run. So first of all, thank you for having me and giving me the platform. Um, you know, I obviously, I, I pray on everything. I don't hide my faith with respect to um, how that informs my decision-making, particularly when you take on big decisions. So I prayed a lot. I, of course, talked to my family and constituents, but decided ultimately to jump in because I think we are in a unique moment in this country, in this city, where we're talking about race and racism, systemic inequities. People, of course, are emailing, marching in the streets, demanding change. And I think Boston needs new leadership that not only understands what they're talking about, especially the systemic inequities, but has lived them. And I'm running, to mayor, running for mayor to be that leader. And I will tell you, I want to be extremely intentional about bringing folks in this city together across every neighborhood to confront our own painful history of racism and division to eradicate inequities and, of course, to ensure that Boston finally is a city that works for everyone. So let's just start with your background. Are you originally from the city of Boston? Tell us about your life right up to when you were elected. Yeah, so I born and raised in the city of Boston. Uh, I proudly say I'm a public school kid, so I went to five Boston public schools wow. from pre-K all the way to the 12th grade, including Boston Latin School. Um, I left Latin and I went to Princeton University and then UCLA for law school. And I came back and I started my legal career in Roxbury, uh, representing students and their parents in education cases, usually special needs cases or school discipline cases. Um, I represented our most vulnerable because we provided a free legal service. The families usually came from Mattapan, Dorchester, uh, or Roxbury. Um, I ultimately went into state government and I worked as an attorney for Governor Patrick but ultimately decided to run for office after losing my twin brother, Andre, who I talk a lot about, because frankly, his story would not be told if I didn't, if I wasn't blessed to have this platform. Um, instead of him graduating from a BPS high school and going off and reaching his God-given potential and accomplishing his dreams that he had for himself, he cycled in and out of the criminal justice system and passed away while in the custody of the Department of Correction, which oversees our prisons here in Massachusetts. And he was in custody for two years awaiting trial as a pretrial detainee he had a disease called scleroderma, um, and as a result of receiving inadequate health care, passed away while in that system. And so I asked one question when I originally ran for office, which is how do two twins born and raised in this city have such different life outcomes? And it is a question that will absolutely continue to inform the work in this mayoral run. I've always looked at systems that perpetuate inequities um, or that don't show up fairly and equitably for every resident in the city of Boston. Education is a big system that failed him, along with our criminal justice system and so many others. And so many of the issues I'll talk about connect to my lived experience. And so I'm looking forward, of course, to sharing my story with many folks across the city. And I'll just add, Sarah, I know, I know you care deeply about many issues, including criminal justice reform. My whole life has been 
connected in some way to incarceration uh, in the criminal justice system. You know, both my biological parents are deceased. My mom died when I was very young, um, when I was a baby, going to visit my father who was incarcerated. And my father was incarcerated for the first eight years of my life. So clearly was absent until he came back in our lives when I was eight years old, and then he would suddenly pass away. So this, this will be, uh, there'll be a lot of conversations with respect to criminal justice reform as well. Yeah, let's jump back a little bit. You, you definitely answered several of, of my, my questions in that response. Um, just going back to your background growing up in Boston, um, can you talk a little bit about your life? I know you mentioned that your mother died at a very young age um, and that your father was uh, in the criminal justice system when you were very young. What was it like growing up for you at that period? And, and I guess, I know you talk about your path with your, your twin brother and sort of having different trajectories. How did growing up in the city sort of play out for you? Yeah, no, it's, I often say, but for the grace of God in the city of Boston, I wouldn't be where I am. And I probably wouldn't be on your platform talking about a mayor run. Um, you know, we grew up poor and required a lot of assistance but I also had a lot, right? So I went to schools from pre-K to 12th grade that were all deemed excellent. I had access to programming, whether it was the Girl Scouts that brought me to New Hampshire and surrounding communities. I had access to programs like ABCD, PIC, that got me jobs when I was really young, that took me out of my neighborhood into downtown uh, communities that I probably wouldn't have been exposed to but for the schools I went to and these programs. Um, I also had a lot of mentors, right? A lot of folks who came into my life through, whether it's the foster care system. So for a moment of time, we were in that system because my grandmother struggled with alcoholism when we were living with her. Um, some of those folks that I engaged with as a young girl are still in my life to this day. So I look at all of the opportunities, all of the folks who came into my life, and I ask, why can't we reshape systems in such a way that residents, particularly our young people, um, don't have to either deal with poverty, violence, um, incarceration. And if they do, because I don't think any elected is going to eradicate poverty overnight, how do we put systems and opportunities in place to give them what they need to be successful in reaching what they dream of for themselves? And so I care, I care deeply about young people in particular because of what I had in the city. Just to walk back a little further, I know you mentioned that your brother was justice involved and sort of ended up having a, a bit of a different path in life before he, he died so young and within the justice system. Could you talk a little bit about how that impacted you as a person and how it sort of fueled your desire to change criminal justice systems? So, I mean, Andre's loss changed everything for me. You know, of course, I was in a place of anger and frustration that that could happen here in the Commonwealth, you know, a, a state we say is very progressive, but yet we have folks as pre-trial detainees dying because they're awaiting trial and very high cash bail. But rather than stay in a place of anger, I channeled that into a lot of prayer, a lot of self-help sections of, of different bookstores, reading a lot that would inspire me to take that pain and frustration and turn it into purpose. So when I ran for office, including this run now, it's always been purpose-driven. It's always been about how do I channel 
my brother's, the pain and frustration with respect to his loss into something of meaning. Not just to only honor him in his memory, um, but also to do something about it. And the sad reality is I represent District 4 on the council. This is largely Dorchester, Mattapan. This life story that I talk about, I know is relatable to so many folks in my district. They've lived it. Um, loss and pain connected to incarceration, violence. Um, other folks outside of my district, the same thing. It's a story that's very relatable. I don't want to just keep hearing these stories. I want to do something about it. And so this has been an opportunity for me to turn that, that pain into purpose. So that's a good transition to some of the issues that are particularly in the spotlight right now um, after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hands of police officers. This idea and reality of, of racial inequity, not just nationwide, but really here in Boston has, has come to the forefront. And I know earlier this summer, um, you were one of, I believe, six counselors to vote against the mayor's budget. Could you talk a little bit about that decision and what drove it? So I didn't think the reforms that the mayor was pushing in that budget went far enough. Um, the policing reforms, you know, we have been talking about creating greater transparency and accountability and diversity in our public safety agencies for decades, long before I got to the council. And so the Civilian Review Board, um, I wanted a commitment that we're actually going to do that, um, that we're going to demilitarize our police. You know, there are a lot of ordinances that I, along with some of my council colleagues, um, have before the council. I want commitments, right? Um, and I wasn't getting those. Education. We continue to talk about the inequities in education, and I didn't think the budget went far enough to address how we are going to eradicate those inequities, especially now with respect to remote learning. I didn't think it went farther enough in actually cutting the overtime budget within our police department. It's now over $70 million. And I said, we can cut a lot more of that budget than they were going to do to actually get at the root causes of violence. And I also stress the fact that the inequities that black and brown folks in this city have been dealing with for generations, not only did the budget not go farther enough, this idea of gradual progress is unacceptable. And that was one of sort of the, my reactions to when I saw that budget is this, it, it just creates a little bit of change. We need to transform systems entirely in order to close gaps for communities of color. So that budget fight ended up being a bit of a loss, um, but you know, there's always more time to prepare for next year. Have you in the past two months been, been preparing for the next budget? And I guess how in regards to the specific issues that you named? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, we're continuing from the council side to push our civilian review board ordinance that I filed with uh, two colleagues, Councilor Arroyo and Councilor Mejia. We're continuing to push um, the demilitarization ordinance and all the other reforms with respect to policing. Um, including greater transparency, continuing to push greater access to education, um, having the conversation about police officers in our schools. And most importantly, Councilor Bach and I have come together to have the hard conversations around how do we realize these budget savings, right, with respect to the overtime budget. The mayor's committed to some savings. Great. We had a hearing, though, that did not produce a plan as to how we're actually going to actualize the 12, now more than $12 million, he says he's gonna cut from the budget. So holding a lot of hearings and having a lot of conversations to push for those things to actually happen. And that work will continue, of course. 
So that brings me to a question of how Mayor Walsh has dealt with this issue, not just in the past four months since the death, the death of George Floyd and the protests that came after subsequently, but, but also during the entirety of his administration for the past few years. What could you bring to the table that you find lacking in the mayor? So I, I do want to start with this. I have a good relationship with the mayor. I know we both care about this city. Um, he has a good heart. For me, it's action. You know, Boston, on the one hand, is an economy that is doing well for certain folks. We have emerging industries, right? People deem us to be successful when, with respect to our COVID-19 response. But the missing piece of the story is that communities of color are not doing as well. Boston still is very much one of the most profoundly unequal cities in this country. And I know this to be true, not only because I grew up here and have experienced those inequities, I see it in my district uh, every single day. And so I think there needs to be a greater intentionality with naming and completing the picture for communities of color. I don't care what issue you're, at, you're talking about, if you add race, or ethnicity or zip code, it's going to paint a different picture with the terms in terms of access to good education, housing, healthcare. For me, it's about action. So I've put out a lot of different reports, lack of diversity in our public safety agencies, a report over two years ago that has specifics on how we expand or increase, I should say, the number of women and people of color in our departments. Action for Boston children, a report I put out months ago that said keyword action laid out specific ways in which the district could be expanding access to quality schools in every single neighborhood. I'm a mother of two kids. I live in Mattapan. And this is a stat I think everyone in the city of Boston should know, and most do not, that if you live in certain downtown neighborhoods in the city of Boston, you have an 80% chance of getting into a high quality BPS school. You live in Mattapan is 5%. So I think on the one hand, people need to know that. And if leaders don't say that explicitly, they won't. And then, of course, put forth action plans to change that. And I've done all of that, and that won't change going forward. Now, have you found actual tangible action in response to some of your policy ideas and proposals, like uh, specific votes that have come forward that you're, you're particularly proud of, not just on racial justice, but, but on pretty much anything? The Community Preservation Act. That was my first piece of legislation with Council Flaherty when I got to the council. I had folks yelling at me, literally yelling and saying, how dare you come here and put forth a tax initiative. But now everyone takes it for granted that there are millions of dollars available for more housing, affordable housing, historic preservation and parks. Um, I was really proud to push for the creation of the Youth Development Fund. That was one of my first budget asks after one of my hearings. where We had a whole host of young people come and say, but for this program, I wouldn't have had academic supports. I would probably be in jail or dead. We know that there are programs out there that are getting at the root causes of violence, especially for our young people. And now we have a, a fund, um, a line item in our budget, uh, specifically for youth development programming. And that was one of my budget initiatives early on. So there are so many, but those two were critically important okay. and remain critically important. So there's a lot of discussion about making Boston a good place for everyone. And that seemed to be a theme in your video that was released, what was it, a week ago now? And, and also just generally in your campaign platform for racial equity. What does power look like in Boston right now? And do people have equal access to that power? How would you change it? 
Mm, first of all, thank you for that question. Um, no, they do not have equal access to that power. Um, but I want to take start with, I remind my residents, particularly residents of color in my district every day, and especially young people who are grappling with the inequities, they're living it, right, as they try to reach their dreams. The power lies with them. So no one can give them power um, or take it away. It's within us. And I think we have to remind folks in this moment in time that folks are special and that their power is within them to transform many things. But there is a responsibility that government plays in ensuring that every person who lives in our city has the same level of access to the opportunities that government is giving out to residents. And the sad part is that is not the reality. So if you live in certain parts of Dorchester, Mattapan, Roxbury, East Boston, Hyde Park, you have a disproportionate impact with respect to COVID-19, limited access to healthcare or health, health providers. You have limited access when it comes to good, good quality education or early ed access to capital to start a business, access to other economic opportunities, the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, $8 for a black family, some Latinx fam families, $0, a white family, almost $250,000. So these inequities are stark. And so for me, I do think representation matters in the sense that folks who have lived these experiences should be in, in leadership roles, should be in positions of power in the city of Boston. Um, and but couple that with concrete action and plans with respect to how you're going to resolve those inequities is just as important. Um, so on, two, on, the, on the one hand, I remind my folks, they have power to transform these systems. They have power within them um, to transform their own lives, right? No one can take that away from us. But it does, representation does matter. And right now in the city of Boston, in too many spaces, whether it's government, private, nonprofit, the reality is that leadership tends to look white. And I think we have to just be mindful of when we say inequities, it exists there too. What was the kind of community response you got from your district when you became the first black woman to be president of the council? Tremendous joy. You know, I, I don't do this work to become a first, but it does matter and mean something to folks on the ground. And particularly in my district, which is predominantly district of color, right? I had elder black women who maybe see me as a granddaughter call and say, oh, girl, I'm so proud of you. Young people, I would go to schools and people say, oh, she's the first. I know, I want to do a report on Councilor Campbell. And it, it brings tears to my eyes at moments. It warms my heart. So when it gets really hard, that's what I go back to. But tremendous pride. So everything I do, I want to do excellently because I know who I represent and what it means to them. I appreciate that, Counselor. Um, so I know when you were talking about this idea of power, you had mentioned some of the racial inequities that, that COVID-19 and this pandemic have really brought forward. And I know that you've been really involved in all aspects of responding to the pandemic in Boston, which is now listed as a high infection rate city. I'm wondering what you would have done differently than Mayor Walsh to address some of these issues. I mean, keeping in mind that some neighborhoods like Dorchester, East Boston have had higher infection rates and probably because they have more people of color who've been on the front lines being uh, first responders, also people who are essential workers. What do you think about all that? 
No, that's exactly right. Communities of color are being hit the hardest because of the longstanding health inequities in these communities, of course. They are the essential workers. So if you ever thought that the, you know, our communities are not connected, they are. But for many of these essential workers who happen to be people of color or immigrants um, on the front lines, much of the services we take for granted to keep us going would not exist. Um, but they also mean that these communities are being disproportionately hit by COVID-19 and that in communities of color, COVID-19 is the deadliest. And so from the very beginning, I have been sounding the alarm on the higher infection rates um, in certain communities that have never really gone down to match the average Boston rate. And so I've been pushing the mayor and others to say, when you complete the picture, it's not always a pretty one for communities of color and that we need to measure our success by how these communities of color are doing. Um, and so on the one hand, I've worked in close partnership with the mayor and the council with the mayor, right, to respond to a pandemic, which is new for all of us. And our folks expect us to work in partnership, but pushing folks to understand that communities of color are bearing the brunt, that there needs to be greater intentionality with access to testing, rapid testing, our education system. You know, the fact that we were talking about remote learning, there are certain communities that still don't have access to hardware. That digital divide is real. Um, with respect to the remote learning plan, in one of our hearings, I remember asking, how are, we how are we taking into account the fact that certain communities have a higher infection rate? How is that informing your reopening plan? So it's shocking and, and I'm sad actually too, by the fact that today we're talking about, well, we might have to close schools if we go above 4%. There are already communities of color that are above 4% and have been for a long time. So maybe we should be thinking about how we do a phase and approach or think differently around our reopening because of those communities of color. Is there anything in particular you would do differently in regards to, say, reopening the T to a higher extent, um, maybe having made everything completely remote from the get-go? Yeah, so I mean, on education, I came out early on, even when most folks had not, it was unpopular to say, we needed to start remote, period. Mm -hmm. And that was because I was taking into consideration neighborhoods like Dorchester, Mattapan, High Park, and East Boston in Roxbury that ha had higher infection rates than the average across the city. Um, and was pushing the mayor and the, the district to adopt a remote learning plan. I think we wasted a lot of time talking about in-person, hybrid, remote. No, go remote. And then let's focus on making sure our families have all the resources they need, including our parents and teachers to have a successful remote learning experience and then spend some of that energy on how we might do an in phase or phased an approach for those who really need in-person instruction, like special needs students, English language learners, or early learners. And we just wasted a lot of time. So I would have done, done that a lot differently. Okay, and so it sounds like, I mean, we're just starting the school year right now, but, but there's so much that could change. I mean, even with yesterday's announcement of Boston being red, um, a red zone and having a higher infection rate, it's, it's something that, that really could just change overnight. Um, so it seems like you've really been right on some of the issues from the get-go. How does that feel to you? Like, you know, not saying like, oh, I told you so, but, but what are your thoughts on, you know, I had the right idea from the start? So I deem my, you know, I'm successful in this work 
when we're honest about how every single community in the city of Boston is doing. And what I notice and what frustrates me is that communities of color are usually not a part of the analysis. And I always include communities of color, not just because of my story and, and, what, and why I do this work, but because of the district I represent. And I can't be successful if those communities of color are not doing well. So I think I have had some frustration because I think there are many who do not intentionally include communities of color in the equation. I think once they do, then we will have a better chance at crafting a response and action plan that is impactful and successful for every community, regardless of where they live, what zip code. And until we do that, uh, much will be lost, just like what we're talking about with respect to the education plan uh, or other plans. And so I'm going to keep pushing that. I've been very consistent in, in my run for mayor is just a, just a part of, because of that. I'm not seeing enough of that intentionality with respect, communities of, with respect to communities of color. Thank you, um, counselor. So I know we're a little short on time, but I know I'd be remiss if I didn't ask this. Your fellow uh, city councilor, Michelle Wu, announced her candidacy recently. And you both have very progressive backgrounds. You're both women in your 30s. Um, Young and fabulous, as I often yeah, say. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, that's awesome. What makes you different from Councillor Wu? And, and why should, how, how would you even tell people what your main differences are when they're considering their vote? So I, I want to say, you know, I have tremendous respect for Councillor Wu. We have worked in partnership on the council for years, and we're going to continue that as council colleagues. Um, for me, this race is about the people of Boston, and I'm running to confront systems of inequity, whether in education, racial equity, criminal justice, youth development, all issues I've focused on as a counselor, but all of them come out of my experience of growing up in this city and seeing those inequities play out or most importantly, seeing systems like, like our Boston Public Schools and other systems not work for other young people, including my own twin brother. So there's a difference in story, issue focus, and experience uh, in, in, in what I bring to the race. And I know Mayor Walsh hasn't officially declared, even though I do believe in a Boston Herald interview, he sort of said something about the next four years. So it was sort of implied that he's running for a third term, but what are your thoughts on Mayor Walsh? Um, he has said multiple times over the past few years that he wants to see a more inclusive Boston that, that sort of reflects its people. Um, and you and Councillor Wu are women of color. And of course, Boston is a majority minority city, as some people call it. Do you think that it would be a good idea or, or even him sort of fulfilling this legacy of, of wanting the Boston to be equal to just like decide not to run at all. Well, I mean, that's up to him, right? That's a very personal decision. But what I will say is as people are demanding change, they're also demanding change in leadership in every institution to say it needs to be more diverse and reflective of community and that representation matters. I truly believe that as well. And I know I bring a different story background that is not only connected to the inequities we talk about, to race and racism, but is I understand it, I've lived it, um, and now I wanna do something about it. And that's a stark difference between the two of us. 
All right, guys, so we have to wrap things up. Um, I'd like to thank Boston City Councilor Andrea Campbell for joining us today and taking the time to speak with all of us. Thank you so much, Sarah. To our listeners, this has been another episode of the podcast. I'm Sarah Betancourt of Commonwealth Magazine. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.